I'm reading uh, from a, an Old Testament text, a narrative from 1 Kings 17. After I finish reading the word, I'll give a little of the a little of the historical background, but you can kind of pick up what's going on as I read. So remain silent, if you will, as I read 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe, there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And to the reading of the word of God, let us all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you looked in your bulletin, you saw that the title of the message is Prayer Changes Things. That's almost exactly, that is exactly the same title that I preached one year ago in uh, the Lakeside Room in Mount Hermon for our July 4th Sunday. I also had the same three points, but this is an entirely new text and an entirely new message. Now what's not new, what is not new at all, is my desire to leave Cornerstone, you my dearest friends, with uh, truths about the importance of prayer. Uh, If 30 years from now you are still acting on the truths of my preaching about prayer today, then uh, I will have been a godly success, and that's the only kind of success I care about. Uh, If you've ever visited Christian bookstores, you likely have seen bracelets or or plaques or... um, jackets or bumper stickers and oftentimes you will see this statement prayer changes things prayer changes things now for years I kind of thought that statement was kind of trite you know and after all let's be honest a lot of the sort of bookstore trinket statements are trite aren't they I mean let's be honest here's one God is my co-pilot I think someone wisely said, if God is your co-pilot, you need to change seats. (laughs) And Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Well, that's true. But that kind of leaves the impression that, well, you know, you've got to live any way you want because God will always forgive you. And then there's the one, do you remember driving? Oh, this was popular. I don't know if it's popular today. 
remember when I was driving in my 20s, all around, honk if you love Jesus. So you go down the freeway and people were honking, you know. Then I saw a great response to that, a bumper sticker that says, if you love Jesus, tithe. Anyone can honk. So I thought that was pretty good too. But over, over the years, the more I've pondered prayer changes things, the more I've come to believe that uh, it's true. Not only true, but precisely and powerfully true in a sense that we don't even think about sometimes. Uh, <clears throat> the culprit, I believe, is that we have misunderstood prayer. Let me talk about that for a minute. Um, we're called to commune with God, to talk to God. We worship him. We think about him. We ponder who he is. We ponder what he has done in the world. We stand in awe of the sovereign triune God. You ought to be doing that all the time. I ought to be doing that all the time, recognizing God and his greatness and his sovereignty and telling him that. But most of the time in the Bible, that's not quite the same thing as prayer. Did you know? Almost all prayer in the Bible is, let me use a little word here, it's not hard to figure out. Almost all prayer in the Bible is petitionary. What does that word mean? Come on, somebody tell me. It's petitionary. What does that mean? We're asking. I mean, in prayer, we ask God to do things on the earth. More importantly, we ask God to change things. Now think about that. In prayer, most of the time, we're asking God to change things. We're really asking God to change the status quo. I mean, otherwise, our prayers would be like this. Dear God, you're a great and glorious God, and you're just really great. You're really wonderful. You're a great sovereign God. And God, everything down here is fine. We don't want you to do anything. Is that like a biblical prayer? No. Um, <clears throat> things are a certain way. Our hearts are cold. Or somebody has cancer or a disease or an illness. Or uh, we've lost a job or we don't have enough money for the bills. Or our children maybe are drifting from the Lord. Or we need direction for a decision. We don't know which way to go, whatever. And so in a petition, we ask God to change the way things are. There's a problem down here, God, and we need you to help us. In other words, we're not satisfied with the status quo. Now, by the way, there is a both godly satisfaction and ungodly satisfaction and godly dissatisfaction and ungodly dissatisfaction. Let me talk about that a second. Ungodly dissatisfaction is when God does good things for us and we don't accept what he's done. God puts us in a situation, he calls us to something, and we don't like that, and so we get very dissatisfied. That is a sin. That's a sin. But there is a godly dissatisfaction. That's when things are out of kilter, are not the way that they should be, and we ask God to change them. There's nothing ungodly about that kind of dissatisfaction. Now, some people seem to have the idea that if we ask God for things, if we petition God, that's somehow self-centered or unspiritual. Oh, I would never, I would never ask God to come to my aid. I would never ask God to do this and that. I would never ask him. I would just accept the way things are. Well, that sounds very pious. But that's not pious. That's actually, and think with me here, 
denying God, denying God the right, which he can do anyway, to reach down and accomplish great things in the earth so that he will get the glory. In fact, that idea, I think, is so mistaken, it's probably spiritually fatal. Now, in addressing the Lord's Prayer, Matthew Henry, the commentator, notes that the devout Jews of Jesus' time would often pray by telling God how great he is. That's good. That's wonderful. That's entirely appropriate. That's how we should approach God, in fact. But then Matthew Henry goes on to say, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he told them to pray petitions. Did you notice that? When you pray, pray like this. He said, pray and ask the Father for things. Now, when we ask for things, we're not somehow less spiritual than we, when we tell God how great he is. For one thing, when we pray and when God answers prayer, he increases our faith, doesn't he? When you pray and when God answers prayer, doesn't that increase your faith? And you say, God, that was great. If I can pray for that, maybe you can do something else. Let's take an example. The Lord's Prayer petition. One petition. We pray at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now I've got to tell you, that's a pretty big prayer. <laughs> now think about that. That's a very big prayer. We're praying that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven? Question, how is God's will done in heaven? Perfectly, flawlessly. And yet Jesus tells us as his disciples to pray that same prayer today. A huge prayer. Now when God answers that prayer, when people turn to Jesus Christ for salvation, when they start living godly lives, when artists, when businessmen, when politicians start doing God's will, God glorifies himself. Believers and unbelievers start looking around and saying, this must be some kind of God. Remember that in the Old Testament? God would do a great work for Israel and all the nations round about would say, whoa, this is an amazing God. And it happened often with the disciples in the New Testament. In other words, God gets the glory when we pray and when he answers our prayers. And know this, God loves to get the glory. So prayer changes things. When we pray, we're asking God to change things. And when he answers our prayer, he changes things. He does. He's changing things. Now, that brings us to a most telling fact I want us to consider today. We don't often think about this. <clears throat> if we are perfectly willing to accept the way things are, we can never be people of prayer. Think about that. If you and I are perfectly willing to accept everything the way it is as being fine, we can't be people of prayer. Because, you see, great prayer warriors are people who want things to change. Prayer changes circumstances. Prayer changes people. And I would say prayer changes God. I want to show this uh, graphically in this passage from the life of Elijah. I could have, to prove this today, I could have selected hundreds of passages. Really, really, hundreds but this one, I was reading recently, and it just jumped out at me. So <clears throat> I'm going to use this one. I said prayer changes circumstances. Well, what's the circumstance surrounding what we read in the scriptures there? <coughs> in uh, the scriptures we read, that we read today. God had sent a great drought on Israel. Why? Because Elijah had prayed for it. Did you know that there was a great drought? Because Elijah had prayed for it. The king at this time was, does anybody know who the king was during this period? King Ahab, and he had a very evil, wicked wife, Jezebel, 
They were apostates. They were idolaters. They were leading all of Israel into sin. Elijah was God's prophet. And he had read God's law, which says that if God's people apostatize, if they turn their back on him, he will shut up the heavens so that the heavens will not send rain. In other words, Elijah prayed and he declared God's actions according to God's revealed will. Now think about this. Elijah didn't need to ponder what the will of God was. This is so great. This will help your prayer life. Where the Bible states something plainly, you pray that because you know it's in the will of God. Listen, it is in God's will for people to repent. It's in God's will for people to obey. It's in God's will for us to preach the gospel. You don't have to pray, no, Lord, we ask, will you please show us today whether, whether we should be declaring the truth of your word and the truth of your gospel? Show us today whether we should be training our children. Up. You don't have to pray about that. You pray that God blesses you according to what his word says. So, Elijah knew what the will of God was. If God's people turn away from him, he promised to punish them. So Elijah prayed, Elijah prayed that God would do just that. Elijah prayed that God would act according to his word. That's always a safe prayer to pray. Well, as a result of this drought, there was very little food and water, right? So God led Elijah to the home of a widow and to her little son. And God miraculously provided for her so that she could provide for Elijah. Isn't that remarkable? God didn't send Elijah to a strong man's house, to a successful businessman's house. He sent him to the house of a poor widow with a son. And God used her to provide for Elijah. Then after a while, this dear woman's son got sick and died. And you can imagine how grieved that she was. In fact, how resentful. If you read the passage, she was resentful of Elijah. God had sent this man to invade her home. And Elijah, too, as you might imagine, read it in his prayer. He was deeply shaken. Why would God allow this? Why would God allow this tragedy? Now, I'd like to draw your attention to a very important fact. In observing this child's death and seeing this mother's grief, Elijah did not pray what I would call a predestinarian prayer. So what in the world, Andrew, does that mean? Let me explain. Elijah didn't pray, Lord, you've allowed this precious child to die, and obviously this is your will, so we accept your will. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Elijah didn't pray that prayer. And then he didn't encourage the mother simply to accept her son's death as God's will. No, he didn't do that. Elijah apparently didn't believe that it would be pious, that it would be God-honoring, just to allow this child to remain dead. He didn't believe that. No, Elijah didn't accept the status quo. Elijah knew that prayer changes things. Now, too often we are worried about violating God's secret decrees, that we turn our backs on the revealed will of God, the revealed word of God. God's powerful. He is a prayer-hearing God, and he longs as a heavenly father to do good things for us as people. He longs to do good things for us as his people. The Bible says that very plainly in Matthew 7. He's a good father, and he wants to do good things for his people. Yeah, sometimes God allows bad things to happen to good people. Yeah, Job is an example in the Bible. But that's not the way he operates most of the time. He's a loving, heavenly father to his children. 
And just as you want to do good things for your children, so he wants to do good things for his children. Unless you believe that you're a better parent than God is. I don't think so. So let's be very careful about using God's secret counsels as an excuse not to pray. You say, do Reformation people believe that? You ought to see what some of the great Reformation men on prayer say about that. Not using God's secret counsels as an excuse not to pray. They're called God's secret counsels for a reason. We can't know them. Let's pray according to what we do know, not according to what we do not know. And we do know that God is a loving and kind father who wishes to delight his children. Prayer changes circumstances, and it changed this widow's circumstance. Now, second, prayer changes people. The child was dead, and Elijah prayed, and God raised him from the dead. Now, that's not, exa- not an example of what we would call today um, a healing ministry. Some of you know about a large charismatic church in Reading that uh, specializes, and I've investigated them, and some of you have, specializes in alleged public resurrections. And there's a huge amount of weirdness and goofiness and plain old theological error surrounding this ministry. But one thing, one thing I want to point out today is that when Elijah raised his child from the dead, there wasn't great public fanfare. There wasn't publicity. He didn't rent an arena. Everybody come and bring your checkbooks with you. And let's get the word out. No fanfare at all. So this wasn't an example of a party for wild answered prayer. These healing ministries that bring in hundreds or thousands of spectators and bring glory to man and bring money into the coffers are a prostitution of the biblical teaching on prayer. When God used Elijah to raise this boy, only three people knew. And only three people needed to know. And they did. Prayer changes people. God gives us volition, God gives us choice, but he doesn't turn us into robots. And we pray for other people and God can so work in their lives without coercing them or turning them into robots. God can work in their minds and hearts to change them. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 to teach the flock that they need to pray for their political leader so that people can live, the people of God can live a quiet and peaceful life. That's an appropriate prayer. You know, basically... That's saying, we need to pray that the politicians in our nation, in our state, enact laws and act in such a way to let the people of God alone so that they can live their faith according to the dictates of their conscience. The Bible says that's the kind of prayer that's always appropriate to pray and not persecute the people of God because of the practice of their religious beliefs, like certain laws did with the Hobby Lobby and other things that are happening in our nation. Job was a godly man of prayer. Read the first six verses of Job. Every day he would pray that God would forgive his adult children if they'd sinned. Isn't that a touching prayer? Read it in the first six verses of Job. So powerful. But then there are several times in the Bible, I was reading several of them this week. There's one in Jeremiah 14, 11, but there are a number of obvious ones. Where God, this is really remarkable, God tells his prophets not to pray for his people. Now think about that for a minute. I'd like you to think about that. If God says to his prophets, do not pray for them, they have gone so far 
They have turned their back on me so many times. I don't want you praying for them. If that is the case, then that's got to mean that when God's holy individuals, men and women of God, do pray, what is God likely to do? To change people. To get them right with him. And that's why he said, don't pray for them. They've been so evil, I don't want you bothering me about them. It's remarkable. Prayer changes people. Now, I don't mean by that that if we pray, the act of prayer will change us. Of course, that's true. When we pour out our hearts to God, we get much closer to him. You know that, don't you? Have you known that? When you pour your heart out to God, you get much closer to God. And our hearts and minds are riveted to spiritual things. And all of the other stuff you thought was important, you think, wait a minute. After spending time in prayer, that over there is not that important. We sort of lose our worldliness and God changes our hearts. God changes those who pray. But that's not mainly what I'm saying here. I meant something else. I meant we should pray for God to change other people and he will change them. Just as he raised this child from the dead in answer to Elijah's prayer. So he'll raise up sinners to eternal life because of our prayer. So, the question for us is, do we pray for God to save sinners? If not, why not? Now, the wrong answer is, well, we don't know because we're not sure if they're one of God's chosen or the elect. That's the wrong answer. Don't worry. All of God's chosen will be in the fold one day. Don't worry. All of God's chosen will make it to the fold in the final day. Having said that, God doesn't only elect men, people, to salvation. He also elects the means to get them there. And prayer and preaching are the means to do that. So I want to urge you today, if your spouse, let us say, is walking away from the Lord, or your children, or your friends, let's pray that God unleashes his bloodhounds to find them and bring them back. They have the mark of baptism on them. That's a mark of discipleship. That means they've been given to the Lord. Well, they've been given to him, so let's pray he goes and gets them. That's not rocket science. That's godly prayer. Let's be very careful about being too analytical in prayer. You know what I mean about being too analytical? Well, Lord, we really want them to come back, but Lord, we really don't know precisely how and when your plan is. Your secret will. So, Lord, we're praying that you show yourself mighty, but maybe you don't want to show yourself mighty in this case. So, therefore, Lord, we, we really, why are we praying? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, we get on our face before God and say, God, please act according to your word and do great things to show your great might and your great power. If our brothers and sisters are sick, we need to pray that God heals them. Now, I was reading the book of James, and something struck me this week. That's not just a good idea. That's what the Bible demands. Did you ever notice that? It doesn't just say, oh, what a privilege we have. If you're sick, what a very sick, you can come to the Lord. Oh, what a great privilege it is we can come to him, and he will hear us and work in our lives. That's not what James says. What does he say? If you're sick, yeah, pray. Exactly. All right. And that happened in the life of this very woman that just spoke. I was just going to mention that. Pray. You say, does that mean that it's never, ever in God's will for anybody to be sick? No. There are cases in the Bible. Very clear in 2 Timothy 4.20. Paul left a particular gentleman. I left him and I left him sick. 
Clearly, it was God's will for him in that particular case to be sick, and Paul said, I left him. So you can't say, well, obviously people lack faith or everybody would be healed. That's not what the Bible says. But in many, many cases, God sends illnesses so that we will pray and exercise faith and be healed and bring glory to God. Jesus says that in John chapter 11. Why was this man born blind? Because he sinned or his parents? And what did Jesus say? Not because he sinned or because his parents, but so what? Does anybody know? So the glory of God can be revealed. It's not about, listen carefully, this is really cool. It's not mainly about people getting better. That's, that's true too. I mean, God, he wants people generally to be in good health, to serve him. That's true. But the main thing is the glory of God. And that's another reason that about 99% of these healing crusades are so wrong, totally wrong. God doesn't get the glory. You say, well, I saw Benny Hinn on TV. And he, he touched somebody's head and they, they, a couple of teeth grew, or they said a couple of teeth grew back in their head. And everybody clapped. The clapping most of the time is for this, like, this is really cool that this man can do this. Rather than God alone getting the glory. In other words, like Elijah, when somebody's sick, even to the point of death, we shouldn't merely accept the status quo because prayer changes people. Then finally, I would say, prayer changes God. Now, that statement may not ring true in our ears, and I hope that when I said that, I hope that when I said that, everybody's ears perked up because the Bible says in Malachi 3.6, can anybody quote Malachi 3.6? I am the God of heaven, and I do not change. So wait a minute, Andrew, wait a minute. You just said that prayer changes God. So let me explain. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So obviously, there is some sense in which God does not change. He doesn't. But there's obviously another sense in which God does change. Again and again, the Bible says that God repents or relents. Or changes his mind. I don't mean just one time. I don't mean two times. I mean again and again. Now that's not a contradiction. And let me explain this to you, okay? When the Bible says that God doesn't change, it means that God's character doesn't change. It means his nature doesn't change. He's always loving. He's always just. He's always holy. He's always kind. He's always long-suffering. God isn't capricious. God doesn't, quote, get up in the morning. God doesn't get up in the morning anyway. But God doesn't get up in the morning and say, oh, what can I just sort of do differently today? Yesterday, I I didn't like the way that I was yesterday. That would be blasphemy. God's not flighty. He can't be evil. He can't be unrighteous. He can't be unloving. His nature can't change. But sometimes God will declare in specific cases what his purpose is, and his purpose can change, and it does change. His stated purpose in a particular circumstance. Boy, one of the most obvious examples of that, and this is the one that just strikes at my heart, maybe the main one altogether, is in Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, do you remember? Some of you know what I'm going to say. God looks down, God created earlier, God created a man and a woman for fellowship with him to share this wonderful communion of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. He said, let's have more communion, let's create more people in our image, more uh, people in our image so we can all have fellowship with one another. And God looked down and there was so much evil and corruption with almost everyone, not every single person, but almost everyone. How they treated one another and their sexual perversion and all of their just anger toward one another and their hatred and violence and Genesis 6 says God he was sorry that he had made man that's one of the saddest verses he said this is terrible 
He's saying to himself, why did I do this? Why did I do this? This is so sad. So sad. And God repented. He didn't change his nature. He's still God. He says, this, is, this hurts me so badly. So badly. In the book of Jonah, we read God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, a very evil city. Basically, uh, modern day Iran or Iraq. He said, go and tell them I'm going to completely destroy them. 40 days. He didn't say, he didn't say, if you repent, I'll withhold judgment. He just said, get ready, I'm going to destroy you. But they did repent. And God didn't destroy them. God says he's going to do something, and then people pour out their hearts before God, and he sometimes repents. Doesn't mean he was wrong before. It means he's willing, he is willing to be dissuaded. It's almost like this. Sometimes Don and I, some of the other guys, we're, we're writing one another, sending email, and we'll, we feel pretty strongly about something, but we'll say at the end, anybody have any thoughts? I'm willing to be dissuaded. It's almost like God sometimes is willing to be dissuaded. I'm going to send my judgment, but if anybody's righteous down there, I'm willing for you to dissuade me. It's a beautiful, beautiful teaching. This happens so many times in the Bible, I think we might want to say that it's in God's nature to change his mind when people pour out their souls to him. Now, a great example, of course, is in our text. We read that twice, Elijah, did you notice how it was translated there in verses 20 and 21? Elijah cried to the Lord. Now, I assure you in the Hebrew, that's not talking about quiet time prayer. Lord, I just want to be quiet before you, just kind of quiet. That's not what it says. It said he cried to the Lord in great anguish of spirit and great emotion. Then we read in verse 22. Did you notice that? It says the Lord listened to him. Now that implies something very important that I don't want us to miss. God was set on a path to take this widow's son in death, and God would have been a good God to do it. Not a bad God, but a good God. That was his implied purpose. But Elijah's great emotional plea turned God around. God changed what he had declared and planned to do. Elijah prayed and his prayer changed God. Now, here's what the Bible does not invite us to do. It doesn't invite us to say, okay, well, like, which one of those is God's truly sovereign will? Because it's like the first one, his sovereign will, or is it like the second one, his sovereign will? Or is it like his sovereign... Here's what we know from the Bible. God's sovereign will is accomplished. You don't have to worry about that. God's not up there going, oh dear, I don't know what's going on. Is everything everything going to work out okay? No, everything's going to work out just fine. God's will is going to be accomplished. But part of his will is interacting with his people such that he listens to their prayers and he can be persuaded and dissuaded by their prayers. The Bible's quite clear that in this way, prayer changes God. And this is why that we read in the book of James that, oh, Who is the man that is said to be our pattern in the book of of James? A man is said to be our pattern who prays very effectually and God listens. Who, by the way, does James say is our pattern in prayer? Elijah. Elijah said, you need to pray like this guy. If this is true, we need to be more audacious in prayer than we are. I say more audacious. 
I was reading, and this is the last text that I'll mention today, in Exodus 22. Remember Israel had turned uh, to idolatry and fornication when Moses was on the mount? He was receiving the law on Mount Sinai, and God told Moses, he said, you better get down from the mount. And those people, your people, are down there, have turned to all sorts of idolatry and immorality. And then verse 10, I, I just, this, is one of, this is why you have to read the Bible carefully. In verse 10, God's telling Moses to go down out of the mount. And he says, I'm going to destroy Israel. And you read the expression in English. It says, leave, God says to Moses, leave me alone. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Why did God tell Moses to leave him alone? Because Moses was in the habit of disturbing God in prayer. God would say, Moses... I'm sick of these people. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to do this. And Moses would say, God, I beg you, don't do that. And, and God would say, okay. God would change his mind. In other words, God's stated purposes can be changed if we pour out our hearts in prayer. That's another way of saying that God has made himself vulnerable and susceptible to godly people's pleading. Now, you say, well, why do people not believe that more? Well, they believe in the God of the ancient pagan Greek philosophers. Now, you may not have studied that, and you don't have to. Don't worry about it. But let me tell you, here's a big problem. The Greeks believed that emotion and changeableness were inferior qualities. Therefore, the highest deity that they could think of, this is true of Aristotle, for example, was a god that didn't have any emotions, a god that never changed his mind. But there is a problem with that. And that is, that description I just gave you isn't a person. I mean, do you have emotions? Yeah, I hope so. Have you gotten mad this past week about something? No, I never get mad. Well, yeah, actually you do. And sometimes, many times, we're sinful when we get angry, and sometimes we're not. You ever get sad? Mm -hmm. Well, the Bible says that God gets sad sometimes. You say, well, that isn't really... That's just like an anthropomorphism. That is, the, God's just telling us that that's... So we can understand it. But this happens too often in the Bible, and again and again... This is the way God is. A person has emotions. A person changes his mind. Emotion's not a sin. Changing your mind isn't a sin. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. You're not somehow inferior because you have emotions or you change your mind. And since God is the greatest possible person, he certainly has emotions, and he certainly can change his mind. You're not as much a person as he is. He's more of a person. He is, his emotions are stronger and pure. Ours are weak and sinful. His emotions are pure, holy emotions, righteous emotions. <coughs> Therefore, when something bad's happened, or when someone has committed some terrible sin, I say to you and me, don't just sit and wait for God's judgment. We have prayed and continue to pray for God. God, please bring somebody to repentance. Get on your knees and beg God to avert his judgment. I mean, we know this is true. We know it's true of a nation. Abraham interceded. Remember when he interceded? If there are so many righteous people in, what was the city? Sodom. And God, was God listening to him? Yeah, God listens to him. Sure. If you can find 50 righteous, I won't judge it. Uh, Sodom's a pretty bad place. There are like many, many thousands there. Maybe there aren't even 50. God... 
maybe if there's only 40. All right, I'll buy that if there are 40. That's kind of the way the prayer went. Get on your knees and beg God. Know this. God will never break his written promises to us. He will never break his written promises to us. But God certainly will avert or change his direction in many cases if we pour our hearts out before him. Don't think that your prayer can't affect God. Don't think God's not emotional about his people. If you have read the Bible, you've seen how often he will get furious when they turn their back on him. He delights in them when they love and trust him and repent and obey. We have examples not just in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Good example. Here's Peter. Oh, Lord, I'll never deny you. And, and Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was grieved, just grieved. When he knew that that, in fact, would happen. Therefore, appeal to God's mercy, appeal to his honor, even appeal to God's reputation. I love when Moses did that. In Exodus 32, I'm going to destroy these people from the face of the earth. And Moses says, but God, what are all these nations around going to think? Oh, yeah, we heard about this great God. He brought, we heard he brought them out of Egypt and destroyed Pharaoh and all of his hosts. We heard that. But then he brings them out here and he can't even keep them alive. What kind of God is that? And God says, basically, you, you have something there. You have something there. I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to keep him alive for my name's sake and for my honor's sake. Prayer changes circumstances. Prayer changes people. Prayer changes God. If that's true, I say in conclusion, and it is, we should pray more. We should pray more often. We should pray more fervently. We should pray more confidently. And we should never settle for the status quo. Because the whole point of prayer is for God to change things. Having said that, let us pray. Michelle, I would like for you to pray for this congregation today and throughout the rest of our lives that we would pray with great confidence knowing that to those who pray in faith, God changes things. 